My name is Rachel and welcome to season two of The Narrative Labyrinth. Here in this small corner of the audio internet, we dive into film, TV, literature and game with in-depth review, discussion and analysis. I'm joined by a selection of guests ready to talk about nostalgia and nostalgia baiting, what that really is and why we crave their old school dopamine so much. So please welcome. Hello, I'm Andy. I'm back. Uh, I, I miss season one though. Season one. Oh, that was, uh, it was a simpler time back then. So, so, so much simpler, nicer. Intros went so much smoother. I miss it. And I'm Zoe, and I'm feeling nostalgic for the guests we had on season one. <laughs> I was in season one. I count. I have regrets already. <laughs> you knew what this was. So, okay, straight off the bat, what is nostalgia? Someone tell me what nostalgia is. Hankering after the past. Rose-tinted yep. glasses. Oh, rose-tinted specs, absolutely. A ace. A longing for a simpler time where men were men and women were women and doors were doors. I think it's fair to say we are in a heyday of nostalgia making in terms of our content that we, you know, watch, read, play, listen to. Maybe less so. Um, but we're I don't know. Getting Every on... time I turn on the radio at the moment, it does feel like they're like sampling brilliant 90s tunes. And I'm like, oh. So I think we are feeling nostalgia for better times. Are, are you listening to uh, Kiss FM's Best of the 90s, though? Because that <laughs> might explain that. Shut up. Yeah, okay. Have you just got your 90s playlist on? Is that the problem? Maybe. So nostalgia, we all know it's a thing. We know it's a big thing. Um, and what would you say nostalgia baiting is? How would you define nostalgia baiting? Nostalgia baiting is... Mm, I suppose the question really is, how are you spelling bait? Because if it's B-A-I-T, then I would view that as a sense of the, uh, the producers, the publishers, the content creators are, are dangling the promise of a thing which is familiar to you, a, a thing which harkens back to that simpler time where young boys would push rickety bicycles up very steep hills to get bread. Uh, and apparently that was a thing that we want to do and is... is something we should be nostalgic for now if it's in the head spelt b-a-t-e it means you uh spend all of your time jerking off while watching old shows is jerking off mandatory or optional it depends on the spelling fair enough zoe what do you think nostalgia baiting is moving away from masturbation hopefully <laughs> rude um it's too late now <laughs> that's it the sticky wicket um i think nostalgia baiting definitely something we're seeing at the moment where um as andy said they're kind of putting stuff out there that they know will make people feel nostalgic and remember when they were young and they felt happier because things were simpler uh, and therefore trying to draw the audience in with remembrance of what was member berries member member star wars yes member member chewbacca you remember I think it's fair to say nostalgia baiting is where, as you say, producers of content, so content makers, directors, producers in kind of any form are intentionally inserting elements of the past, previous franchises, stuff that makes us feel warm and snuggly on the inside into new things in an aim to get us to watch them, buy them, consume them. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. It's, 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 they are hedging their bets, effectively. They, they are making a, a role that... You enjoyed a thing before, or people enjoyed a thing before. So if they enjoyed it before, they will enjoy it again, which is why 
uh, new IP or intellectual property, you know, when it comes to films or comes to uh, computer games or any other kind of media is so much rarer than it was previously. And this isn't anything new. It's just, it's become a lot more blatant. You know, if you look at something, say Star Wars, for example, and we've just had five years of Disney Star Wars. What are we on now? Five or six years of it, Mm. which has just been all of, you know, Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars, back, 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 back. And if we're perfectly honest, The Force Awakens is basically just a new hope redressed in the modern skin. But if you look back at Star Wars itself back in 77, that was just a redress of the kind of shows George Lucas would have been watching in the 30s and 50s, Flash Gordon and um, uh, Buck Rogers, for example. But... Well, he wanted to make a Flash Gordon movie and couldn't get the rights to it. So he made yeah. Flash Gordon with the serial numbers shorn off, basically. Yeah. And the Star but Wars. What it is is it's still nostalgia. It's still harkening back to that simpler, better time, that thing which brought him comfort. But it was dressed up a lot more. A lot more effort went into making it something uh, unique, something uh, a bit more of its time. Whereas now they don't even bother doing that. They just march out. Hey, you remember Ghostbusters? Remember Dan Aykroyd? So working on that principle that you just mentioned, like Star Wars originally, it was an original, uh, obviously the, the the idea itself wasn't new, but it was redressed up in a new way. I think we can see a lot of that still happening, um, or certainly did happen with kind of our rom-coms. You think 10 Things I Hate About You is a remake of the story, Taming of the Shrew. You could say yeah. there's some nostalgia element there, obviously 400 years apart, Um but someone is unlikely to watch 10 Things I Hate About You, particularly its target audience, and go, this is Taming of the Strew. And I think that's the difference, though. So a lot of rom-coms are wholeheartedly based on mostly Shakespeare, but, you know, a few other bits as well. Um, but very few of them, I would say, are nostalgic. They're just taking a plot and reusing it because it works um it's not to make you harken back to the times of shakespeare it's just saying we know people understand and can buy into this plot it's good now we can just concentrate on the fluff around it um and i think there's a difference between kind of reuse um and remake and i think certainly at the moment we're getting a lot of reboots remakes picking up sequels etc because of nostalgia, not just unnecessary sequel seems to be the biggest nostalgia trend we've got going at the moment. I think there's a lot of that going around. Um, <clears throat> all I can say is I wish our uh, governments were as good as recycling and we probably wouldn't have a climate change issue as our film industries are at recycling old elements for nostalgia. When you say unnecessary sequels, uh, that's interesting because it kind of comes down to why are you making the thing, doesn't it? Uh, are for you money. making art? Well, yeah, people are making things for money. They're making content. We've had this discussion uh, you know, previously at the end of season one. See, nostalgia, back for a previous episode. Uh, but we we have uh, situations where Fast and Furious, for example, we're up to, I don't know, 11 or 12 of those films at this point. Do we need 11 or 12 of those films? Oh, really? People enjoy yeah. them, though. They keep turning them out because they have name recognition. People like the characters. They like the brand. And they keep making it. Is it art? I don't know. Is it, you know, furthering the betterment of of, of mankind? Couldn't say that. But people enjoy it. So are they un- unnecessary or not? I mean, that's uh, 
it's, that that bears a sticky wicket, really. It's it's not. I don't. I mean, think it's that comes to down to whether you think. Um, this comes down to whether you think art is unnecessary or not, because again, regardless if you class them as art or not, they are. Film is an artistic narrative of choice. Um, but I would say the Fast and the Furious franchise do not rely a lot on nostalgia um, outside of their own franchise. You don't see them go, oh, do you remember, do you remember back in the first film when we stole they, uh, those Panasonic DVD players and those TV video they, combos? They, they were combos, thank you very much. And and you're right, it doesn't. But what it is, it's, it's we are, it is an ongoing IP. It's something that's entrenched within it. If you want an example, perhaps, of something an ongoing IP which does keep falling back into itself. James Bond is a good example. Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, and that's especially been apparent in this recent uh, Daniel Craig era where, you see, Austin Powers kind of broke James Bond because Austin Powers uh, showed held up a little mirror to James Bond and said, look how ridiculous you are. No one is going to take you seriously anymore. And they were right. And then it went through this whole period of kind of self-reflection and trying to reinvent itself. And first it tried to reinvent itself as this Jason Bourne-esque, you know, really brutish, thug-like James Bond. Uh, and then it suddenly realised, uh, but you know what? We do kind of miss the gadgets, don't we? And we kind of miss Q. And we kind of miss the sexism. And we kind of miss the tuxedos. And then by the time you get to the last one, it's basically a Sean Connery, James Bond film. Yeah, I think Bond, that's the one I was going to say, is a really good example of nostalgia. Um, in exactly as you say, it it wandered away in a little bit in the middle, well, not even the middle, is it? Tail end. Um, because it didn't really fit with modern times and it was kind of realising it was ridiculous and was like, oh, we can be more modern, we can be better. But the audience didn't like it. Its numbers dropped because... Bond is Bond, and people were like, no, this doesn't feel like Bond to us. We are nostalgic for the original Bond, so let's get back to that. To the point where they even remade the same stories. Yep. Yeah. They should really just set uh, do a James Bond film, just set it in the 60s. I, I think James Bond would be much better if you set it in a, in a historic time. But again, is that us asking for that nostalgia? This is Bond. We want this character, but we want it set in a simpler time, a time where it means more to be a, to be a, a secret suave spy. No, I is think that it's our a own case want of nostalgia talking. No, I think what you have there is a character who they will not let move away from a character that was established in the 60s. He, he cannot be a modern spy, a modern hero, while still being recognisably James Bond. And because you yeah. have this weird duality going on there, we get this thing now where it's like, yeah, this is nice because this reminds me of how it used to be. And that is a, an example of nostalgia that's almost coincidental to it like they're they're not trying to necessarily tap into nostalgic feelings about the old one but they've identified things that work with that character and people want from that character and by putting them in there it makes us go oh i remember the, uh, the aston martin oh yeah i remember they had the machine guns it's interesting okay. so a, a weird example of that and i know you hate them rachel but the carry-on films so the carry-on uh, films are obviously very much of their time um <laughs> yes and they tried to continue them you know as times changed and you got films like carry on screaming which just didn't do as well because 
even by that point, the audience was kind of going, ah, these things we thought were kind of quirky and fun at the time, racism, um, are not so quirky and fun You can now. literally see the point in time where blackface ceased being okay. Yeah, um, and the sexism and everything else. So nowadays, we don't, nobody's tried to do new versions of the carry-on films because there is no way to make those okay for the modern times. What we get instead is loads of shows that are basically the best clips of the carry-on films or looking back at the carry-on films or what are the cast doing now because people are nostalgic for them but they can't find any way to make those films okay for a modern audience so rather than remaking them they're just doing lots and lots of shows that look back at them and they don't even try Mm -hmm. to hide that these are nostalgia fests well, if you think uh, there's entire TV channels set up to just reshow old comedy shows uh, and sitcoms. I mean, here in the and... UK, you've got Gold, um, yep. but actually Brickbox as well, which is an entire streaming service people are willingly paying for, predominantly yep. white, middle-class, middle-aged people, to watch old sitcoms on. I know my parents um, bought it, and my mum was like, I've really enjoyed rewatching. Uh, this particular sitcom from the seventies and this one from the eighties. She didn't want to because watch it you can't make it today, can you? They won't let you make that today. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that's difficult. Um, okay, so why do we crave this familiarity? Why do we crave the familiarity of nostalgia? Because it's comforting. It's the whole thing um, about childhood. When you are a child things feel simpler. You can enjoy things without all of the subconscious thoughts in your mind asking you, is this really okay? Should you be watching this? Should you be doing something else? Is there something better you could be doing with your time? Um, When you're a kid, things are simpler. And so there's lots of kind of psychology behind it, but basically we feel nostalgia because we want to relive the simpler times where we basically weren't in our own heads telling ourselves there's something better we should be doing with our time and just letting ourselves enjoy. Yeah. And I think it also comes down to a little bit to how we process memories. You know, when when you remember a fond memory, you remember it more fondly than the memory perhaps was. Yeah. Uh, it works the other way as well. You know, if you have a traumatic memory, you remember that it will inevitably be more traumatic. And let's be clear, when we say that we think back to fond childhoods, that's us. We had fond childhoods we were remembering there. Well, but- nostalgia itself is is a positive memory triggered yeah. by modern cues. That's what it is. So our content creators and our brands are intentionally triggering positive memories to create nostalgia for something. That is that is literally what they're doing. Well, I don't and think actually, there's much of a market for a, a podcast which traumatised people. I don't know. There's plenty of horror ones out there that do do that. Um, yeah. But So our favourite subject uh, is actually a really good example of this. Harry Potter. Uh, I was reading an article the other day. (laughs) But I was reading an article the other day about why kind of millennials and Gen Z are turning their back on JK Rowling, but still remain loyal. She's a horrible fucking turf, that's why. Yes, but still want to remain loyal and, you know, whatever to the Harry Potter universe. And it comes down to exactly the same thing. When we read kind of Potter as kids um a lot of us were escaping worlds that maybe we weren't enjoying and finding solace and somewhere we belonged in the books you know the books had this message that everyone can belong here 
when you read them as a child um, and, you know, created this sense of belonging and well-being and happiness and all of this lovely stuff. We've all grown up, realized JK's horrible turf and been like, oh, but we don't want to lose the feeling the books created as a kid. And it's created this conflict at the moment and this passion, vitriol, whatever, within the audience who were kids at the time saying, we don't want to lose that, but we don't want anything to do with her. Um, but, you know, studios and everything else are still relying on that draw, that nostalgia for Potter that we experienced as a child with new games coming out and plays and books and everything else because they know that creates that sense of nostalgia for us, even if we don't like JK. I think you have to look at what was happening culturally around the time that Harry Potter, particularly the books and the movies were starting. You had 9-11, the war on terror. This was actually quite a new scary time for kids and teens. And it was possibly some of the first times they were actually exposed to these firsthand via early access to the internet or via kind of cable television and easy access to television and things like that. So I can completely understand wanting to hide in a world of relatively secure fantasy. Yeah. And I think because of wanting to immerse yourself into that world, it, it it backfires sometimes where we've had instances where we've gone in expecting to be immersed in this nice, soft, cuddly, nostalgic world. And instead, they've challenged our preconceptions, our assertions and have said, actually, it wasn't uh, as good as you're remembering it or, or things have been differently. Uh, and that's led to rather a large bit of um, what's, what's, what's the polite way to say uh, shitstorm. Uh, yeah, I'm talking, of course, about the Last Jedi. Um, yes, which I, I think, if you look at the uh, the Disney Star Wars sequels, uh, and I'm talking about the main sequence ones, uh, The Force Awakens, as I've already said, is basically a new hope with a shiny new skin on there, almost beat for beat. It's the same film, uh, and then going into the Last Jedi, expecting that what we instead get is an absolutely amazing uh, meta breakdown of uh, the tropes within Star Wars. You literally have characters in there telling you you have to let the past die and kill it if you have to to move on to grow to get away from this and the reaction to that was so polarizing and so vitriolic that the next film came along uh, I don't think could have played any safer if it tried <laughs> no I think you're right so obviously uh Star Wars um I guess has a rocky history um the original trilogy loved lamented harked after uh, by nerds, geeks, and average Joe people alike. Uh, you know, um, if I think of my first experience of Star Wars, it was my father getting, either for his birthday or for Father's Day, probably his birthday, the trilogy VHS box set of the original trilogy. It was gold. It had this like it was great. Had some documentaries in there as well. Um, ah, yes. You could also get it in silver and widescreen. Yes, you could. Um, I think the silver one looks nicer, but either way. Um, but, you know, that was that was what people wanted. They had this original, um, and then obviously we got the prequels. Um, and my father took me to see the, the Phantom Menace, and I was nine. Um, and he was disappointed. I remember him being disappointed by the Phantom Menace as someone who had grown up. And he wasn't a nerd. He wasn't a geek. This was not, he was not into pop culture in this way. He just liked Star Wars. Uh, very, very casually. And he was disappointed with the prequels. And obviously we know that's quite common. There's lots of people that really panned the, the prequels for many reasons, some of them justified. I but mean, what's interesting terrible. now, 
what's what's interesting now is 20 odd years on from the prequels is my students they've had (laughs) my students are nostalgic for the prequels to be fair I'm nostalgic for the prequels a little bit because of things like Clone Wars and the things that Dave Filoni has put out there. Uh, and I will unashamedly, I did this recently with both of you guys, I, I will unashamedly sit and watch Revenge of the Sith and I will make, argue the case that's the best Star Wars film. Yes. Um, and I think there's something interesting there um, when you look at some of the kickback um, some of the things have got recently. It's almost been this polarized, polarized view of what nostalgia is. So we've got to talk about the 2016 Ghostbusters as part of this. You know, oh yes, it's completely marmite. You either absolutely love it or you hate it. And most of the people I've talked to who hate it hate it because it wasn't the nostalgia they were expecting from the first one. They changed it. They made it different. But it was absolutely it... chocked full of nostalgia. That could not be more of a nostalgia-saturated movie if it tried. Yep, but it wasn't what they were expecting. They were expecting men. Let's put it that way. That, well, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't made for 40, 30 or 40-year-old white men. It, it, it yep. was not made for them at all it didn't speak to them and although it does hit a lot of the same beats and it has a lot of the same tropes and a lot of the nostalgic beats as you said rachel it wasn't made for them but the people who it was made for loved it yes and i find that really interesting there's a few things out there at the moment um that are really that you know having the same problem so the recent kind of he-man and you know stuff like that again they're really oh, don't hitting talk to those... me about the stupid new he-man queer baiting <laughs> pile of shit yeah but if you look at just season one um you know again part it part one yeah that it wasn't made for the same audience and that's why they've really had to change it for part two and kevin smith had to come out and say no no bear with it part two will be all right because part one although it had all of those nostalgia you know the tropes the beats the hits it wasn't made for the same audience. A wider audience loved it. Women. Um, and the original fan base lost their gourds. You know, they just completely went rabid over it. So part two, they've had to really kind of go, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Come back. Come back and watch it. Oh, look, it's exactly the same as it was before. Ah, oh, we just we were just fooling you with part one because they couldn't cope with change. Well, what's fascinating as well with He-Man, and, and I say this as a child of the 80s who grew up with these things, is how many of those shows like He-Man, like Transformers, like Thundercats, like Visionaries, I could go on, are just there to sell toys. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm they ashamed make no bones about it. For that. He-Man was, they made a toy and they were like, we need to sell this toy. Okay, we'll make a really cheap cartoon to flog this toy. Literally, and Transformers was almost the same. They made and the then thing what, what, and they made a it, cartoon it was, around it. No, no. With Transformers, the story there is even more bizarre because there was a toy line made in Japan and Hasbro bought that toy line and then commissioned the cartoon to sell the repackaged toys. And then what, what I think is interesting with He-Man is to get around it just being a commercial, they had to start adding on those little morals at the end of the show so they could say, no, no, it's educational. It's fine. No, no, yep. we haven't just been trying to sell you this uh, half-track thing, which makes no sense whatsoever. Who drives a car with wheels like that at all? No, no, there's a mall at the end, you see? He learned a lesson. 
And another one that's really interesting, so it doesn't feel like it's just bashing shows of the 80s that were designed for men to sell toys. My Little Pony. My Little Pony, again, was made originally for the toys. And then they were like, we need something that appeals to girls. We need some toys that girls will play with. What are girls like? Horses. Okay, we've made these toy horses. <laughs> uh, right, now what the hell are we going to do with it? And you end up with My Little Pony. It was the same time as He-Man and that you had. He-Man and G.I. Joe, the boys will play with. Horses for the girls. My Little Pony. And again... Um, were you a horse girl or were you a He-Man girl? Uh, I did have My Little Ponies, but I also had G.I. Joes. I was a tomboy. Like, my G.I. Joes rode My Little Ponies into battle. It was fine. Um, but if you look at My Little Pony, again, obviously it goes away for a while. It loses popularity and then... It comes back with a vengeance with My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. Um, and there we get the bronies joining the club. And it was great. I remember going to cons at the time and they'd have these kind of My Little Pony things and it was full of bronies. And interestingly, there was certainly from that I saw never the kickback with boys wanting to join the My Little Pony club that there was with, you know, a He-Man and Ghostbusters and that wanting to have girls as part of the audience. Hey ho. But again, nostalgia, it's simpler times you liked it as kids, and now it comes back and it's just a repeat of what there already was. But cooler, I will admit, the new little My Little Pony cartoons are amazing. So something I think that has an interesting nostalgia journey, um, and maybe as a child of the nineties rather than like than the eighties, which you two are both are, is um What's about the power Sonny? Race. <laughs> I can't quite hear you. Sorry, Grandad. I'm talking about you're a child of the 80s. I'm not 80. (laughs) Um, But when I was growing up, um, obviously He-Man and that kind of passed. um, And it was way more about the X-Men TV series, who doesn't love that, um, and Power Rangers. And obviously we had the Power Rangers remake movie in 2017, um, which was brilliant. Brilliant reboot. Excellent. A book got massively, massively panned and everyone hated it because it didn't have the nostalgia in it. They remade the Power Rangers without the nostalgia. Yeah. Well, that's the second Power Rangers film, wasn't it? Because there was one from, I think, the tail end of the 90s with Ivan Ooze. Well, they, movie- they made movies <laughs> all the way through. Um, but yeah, they they this one... Which was really interesting because it had some really big names in it. You had Brian Cranston in it, uh, Zordon. Um, you had uh, Elizabeth Banks was in it, and it was a really good movie. It had lots of cast, um, but it didn't hit well on the nostalgia front because it didn't try and be a nostalgic based movie, other than the fact it was the Power Rangers. But if you asked kids at the time um, who were watching it, they loved it. It was a great kind of kid vaguely focused action movie. It's Power Rangers. What the hell can you get wrong with the Power Rangers? Teenagers put magic suits on, fight evil aliens, and then join together in a giant robot. Honestly, what more could kids want in a movie? They made a Power Rangers film without trying to harken back to Power Rangers, at least the show which we grew up with. And then you kind of have to ask the question, why did they do that? If, if you don't want to leverage the existing IP and the existing base, why name it that? And I think a good example there would be Robocop where they did a Robocop remake in, I think it was 2014. They made a film that really was nothing to do with the original outside of a premise of a cop is seriously 
killed uh, and then comes back as a robot. And it had little nods, you know, you had like little glimpses of the suit, you had a version of the Ed 209, but there was nothing that really spoke to the original film in there at all. And this wasn't trying to speak to a different audience like the 2016 Ghostbusters was. This wasn't trying to engage other people. This was just trying to be a action film that was leveraging an existing property and some member berries. And when you do, when you do that sort of a film, if, if you do it in that way and then you don't lean into the nostalgia, you're really setting yourself up for failure. If you don't have anything new to say, if you're just trying to do a do-over, but then you don't bring in the things that people enjoy it, you're just really opening yourself up for all sorts of criticism. And I wonder if the reason they do it is just because they know they can get the funding doing it that way. You know, they go to a studio I mean, or most, a producer. Most remakes, reboots are at best mediocre. I'm thinking things like Jurassic World, Robocop, as you mentioned, um, the Disney's uh, decision to make live action versions of all their animated movies like Mulan, Beauty and the Beast. They've made large profits, but they're all pretty meh. Well, they're meh for us. I mean, I, I'm not saying they haven't I, found an audience who do enjoy them. I mean, I enjoy them. So, I like see? the live action films. I mean, Beauty and the Beast mainly, but you know. But that's just because Disney's on an ever-going uh, mission to remake everything it's ever done because it owns the rights to it all entirely. And uh, it got absolutely <laughs> terrified because John Carter failed and uh, Tomorrowland failed and it didn't know what to do because all its live movies were failing. And then it's okay, we've brought Star Wars and we've brought Marvel. <sighs> At least that's guaranteed money printing. But their actual personal properties in live action were not doing well. They didn't mm -hmm. have anything. So they've just gone back to remake things that they made in animation in the first place. Yep, because Still of nostalgia. They know the Tron film. Ah. I thought Tron Legacy was great. I know, and I want a third one. Damn it! There's no Daft Punk anymore, though, so you can't. <sighs> Dang it! But again, Tron Legacy—that's a really good example. It got massively panned by the because it didn't have the Tron that we were expecting. It didn't have the nostalgia bait of the original Tron. I thought it was quite nostalgia chock full, but it was it was a re it was a soft reboot, really. Because if we're all honest here, and we're gonna be <laughs> honest here, the original Tron is not good. It's really not. Um I tried to show um uh, <laughs> some people Tron for the first time like this is garbage. Yeah, it has not aged well at all. It, it hasn't. Uh and I think there's an interesting thing there about where Sorry, they do. But that's, that's not to say it wasn't an extremely pivotal movie at the time. It just wasn't a good pivotal movie at the time. Yeah. But there's something interesting there, isn't there, about nostalgia where you are doing kind of a soft reboot. So it, it's a good entryway for new people. Or nostalgia where you're doing uh, a sequel. And how do you make that? still good for new audiences rather than just relying on people's kind of memories and fondness from what was already there well you could just do what the matrix uh, and lana wachowski did a new one and just fuck new people and say see the originals or don't or don't watch yes. my movie and that's the third option so you know i'm trying to think of examples for each so ghostbusters afterlife ugh Star Trek's it, a good example of one reboot slash sequels it, but it gives you a good intro there. Do yeah. you mean the Kelvin timeline ones or the yeah. actual 
the 09 one. Well, the, the, the 09 one is a reboot slash sequel. It makes no bones about it. It reboots, it recasts all of the main characters and it sets it at the time of the original series while at the same time preserving continuity. But that's one which, if you've never seen any Star Trek before, you could watch the 09 film and get it straight away. You're on board. What was your opinion on the 2009 movie? Did you like it? Me? I love the 09 film. I think with the 09 film, they basically set themselves up an entire universe where they could tell new stories in that world, modern stories in that world. They, they could do something fantastic. And they squandered it all in the very next film by saying, let's just remake Wrath of Calm, but worse. I agree. I think the so I actually have um, an IMAX poster in my in my office where I'm recording of the Enterprise from the 2009 version. And it is a stunning poster that everyone always sees it and goes, oh, that's a really nice Star Wars poster, Star Trek poster. And I say, <laughs> yeah, it's from the 2009 movie. And they go, ah, and I'm like, what? It was good. And it was an exclusive. So why would I not have it? Um, but I think you're right. I think they set something really good. The cast is great in it. They set a really good principle and then they kind of lose faith in it on the second one and go, ugh. What stories have we got in the original set? Well, we've got the space whales, we've got the Borg, or we've got Khan. Let's do Khan. And it kind of loses it. They could have gone and told other stories. I'd have loved to have seen a different version of the Borg. A reimagining of the Borg would have been really fascinating for them to come across um, and do something with. But I kind of agree with that, but I also don't agree, mainly because... Doctor Who reasons. I think one thing we see with nostalgia, especially with Doctor Who, is this reliance on using the same monsters because... the Daleks? The Daleks, the Cybermen, you know. The best episodes for New Who for me are the Weeping Angels, which, you know, it, it's not the Daleks and the Cybermen. It's something new. Um, I hate that we constantly rely in Who on... The old monsters, because they're like, oh, well, people remember them and they'll be nostalgic for them and we know what we're doing with them. Do you remember the hoo-half when New Who started about would the Daleks be in it or not? I mean, that took up actual column inches in national newspapers. Would the Daleks be in it or not? Well, the problem is the Daleks and the Cybermen are kind of shit villains in this century. Not even the whole thing about... Can Daleks use stairs? Like, that was a massive thing because, that well, originally the Daleks didn't use stairs. And are they going to have it now? Because that was always really stupid, but they couldn't do it at the time. And now we couldn't. And it was just this massive thing. And eventually they're like, oh, they can hover. Woo! And I just like, oh, can we do something new? I get that we like nostalgia. But new ideas, please. Can we just try something else? But... Anyway, I want to come back to Ghostbusters Afterlife because you made an ugh noise. And I know you made an ugh noise. But my point is, it is... No, no, my ugh noise is because I really liked Ghostbusters Afterlife. But I hated it because the nostalgia in it was disgusting and I nearly drowned in it. But actually, I quite liked the new characters and some of the new messages in it. The new stuff was great. It was the old stuff that really wound me up. And I find it really interesting because I think it was a good intro point. So I took uh, the child to see it and he loved it. He absolutely adored it. He's never seen the original Ghostbusters. He did see 2016 and loved that. Um, but that's that was his only kind of Ghostbusters experience. So took him to see this. He kind of knew 
tangentially of things like Stave Puff Man, etc. But he had no familiarity, really, with the original Ghostbusters. Um, he really enjoyed the film because he absolutely connected with Phoebe and has decided that he would like to meet Phoebe Fleece because they'd be really good friends. He'd adopt her. He'd be the extrovert and he would adopt her as an introvert, as every good extrovert should. Um, so I thought they were a really good intro for somebody like him. It had lots of nostalgia, but you didn't need to have seen the original ones to enjoy the film. It would it just gave you some extra warm and cuddlies. Weirdly enough, the weakest part of Afterlife for me was when the original Ghostbusters all showed up. Yeah. Because as my wife my wife pointed out to me, that was just like watching an episode of The Grand Tour where Clarkson, <laughs> me and Hammond just showed up in old boiler suits and you're just going, oh, this is just sad now. Yeah, that bit, the child's just tuned out and kind of started trying to eat the sweets all at the same time again because he didn't know who they were. So that was just completely irrelevant to him i think it was the bit of the film he enjoyed the least (laughs) and it was so badly done as well like it was just it why it didn't need to be in there they even failed trying to do the thing and i'd like to think some part of me thinks it's some like meta commentary on nostalgia but it wasn't it was just putting them in there because we didn't put them in the 2016 one and nobody liked it oh they were in it they just weren't these characters and that is well exactly the sole reason they were in it they were they were in it solely because they and by they i mean sony sony completely misread how fond people were for the ghostbusters uh film and and i maintain that you don't need any ghostbusters film outside of the first one much like you don't need any matrix film outside of the first one but because these things have now become franchises and because a certain demographic are so hugely nostalgic to them they they wanted that payoff and they didn't get it in 2016 and boy did they let us know about that so mm-hmm. it's here there you go and i i don't i i don't want to take away from anyone who who was touched by that moment i understand but for a lot of people it was you know a really important bit and they really enjoyed it and that's great but for me it just really came across a bit trite and it's there solely to tick a box it didn't add anything to the story. I think you could have done Ghostbusters Afterlife in its entirety. Oh, by the way, there's a spoiler here for Ghostbusters Afterlife in three, two, one. You could have done Ghostbusters Afterlife with just the ghost of Harold Ramis, and I would have been fine with that. I didn't need to see. I the also other didn't up, need to it? see him. I was quite happy with his ghost being a non-visible entity. Yep. Some people need it spelt out a bit more literally for a mo. I mean, I don't know. He could have written on a chalkboard. There's, I think there were just many other ways he could have um, done that. I also think rehashing the villain was very... Eh. Like, could that not have been a new big bad? That would have been really nice. Yes, but then that wouldn't be nostalgic, would it? I know. I just, I hate <laughs> watched it in the cinema. I was really annoyed. I hate watched it and I hate loved it. And it was just, it was complicated. It was like a Tinder date. Oh, it was just annoying. Um, <laughs> anyway... Moving on from Ghostbusters uh, to other nostalgic entities and enterprises, uh, because I guess we should. Um, I think Marvel works really hard to try and hit nostalgia with people, particularly in its music uses. Yeah. Which we all know is actually James Gunn. I don't know if I would call that nostalgia, though, because when I think of a film being nostalgic... 
I think it's deliberately trying to elicit a connection to a property that's gone previously or over time. And so you don't while, think Captain yeah, Marvel overworked to try and give you that nineties? Uh, no, I, I don't think it was though because it's set in the nineties, and I don't think you can. I don't think you can play a nostalgia card when you set a property in a time like that. I think it would have been weird if it didn't have those references or the connections to it because that's just all setting it in the place. Now, with Guardians of the Galaxy, you can make the argument there, but that was really, for me, more of a connection to that character and where he was. Than um... I will agree on the Guardians of the Galaxy one because it was uh, within plot reasons why this music was in existence and in this way etc etc i disagree with captain marvel i think they worked extra hard i think they took a lot of the stuff that we see in stranger things um i'm like this is working and shoved it in captain marvel and i like captain marvel as a movie uh but i think there's certain bits where it was just a little on the nose well so you've, I think you, said... you, you, you've said stranger things now that is that is the the nostalgia bait though isn't it that that is really the where all of the nostalgia of the last 10 years kind of came focused into this single prism thing. So there's an interesting comparison there between kind of the Captain Marvel movie, uh, Wonder Woman 1984, and Stranger Things, where they're all kind of set, I can do those in the 80s, but, you know, in, <laughs> in, in the recent past, so recent enough that people will remember them fondly, hopefully, um, and they all handle it kind of slightly differently. Um, and I think it's really interesting there, you know, do you feel they worked? Do you feel they not worked? Was it too on the nose? Um, so I liked Captain Marvel. I didn't mind the kind of nostalgia feel, but I am a, you know, I was born in the 80s, so I am a child of the 90s. And for me, it was like, yeah, legit. Um, but I'm, you know, I don't remember the 80s because I was too little. Um, and I find it interesting kind of watching uh, Stranger Things and Wonder Woman 1984 and seeing the differences there. And, you know, is that nostalgia? Is that just, you know, hitting you over the head with it? Are there plot reasons for it? I think the problem with Wonder Woman and being set in the 80s is it was not particularly hitting on the nostalgia that much. It was almost anti-nostalgia because it was really highlighting a lot of the capitalism and the um, yuppiness of the 80s and putting that under a bit of a lens um, in an optically favourable way. It was almost like anti-nostalgia, Um and although it still had like, you know, the the mall and everything else and the music and it still had a lot of that 80s stuff, including some 80s style graphics, um, talking about collecting them children off the road, those models. <laughs> um, uh, but we know it was written. We know the graphics were done in a pandemic, so we have to give it some leeway on that front, I guess. Um, but I feel like they didn't try too hard to make it a heavy nostalgia movie by its core message and I think that actually confused audiences to some respect they went in expecting like a Stranger Things style 80s romp around and they didn't get it they actually got something that was a bit more complex um, and not particularly favourable of the period in time that they were talking about so that's kind of back to The Last Jedi though where you go in expecting one thing and you get something else we saw it with The Matrix as well where a lot of people have gone into The Matrix Resurrections expecting a rehash or a remake. Where's my kung of... fu and bullet time? Yeah, and and it's unashamedly saying no, no, we're not doing that. I mean, I will say this about Wonder Woman eighty four, but I'm pretty sure at some point it features Blue Monday, 
uh, by New Order. Uh, therefore, it is nostalgic because anything set in the 80s which features Blue Monday uh, is instantly nostalgic. Agreed. Nothing? Nothing at all? Oh, okay, you, got, you, you do get the reference it. <laughs> I do. I'm just, I'm just not pandering to it. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, no, I think... I think you're right. I think, and Wonder Woman 84 is definitely not the same caliber of movie, in my opinion, as The Last Jedi. Um, but then very few films are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say Wonder Woman 84 and the Matrix, the the fourth Matrix movie that's uh, come out recently are actually very similar in their, in their kind of treatment of nostalgia. Um, although the films are extremely different themselves, they do have that same kind of treatment of actually not everything is rosy. And maybe we should stop thinking everything's rosy. I think the problem is, though, when and, and I think this is something of a last Jedi, you know, tried to regress is when you become too reliant on nostalgia. If you become too hooked on it, do not my friends become addicted to nostalgia for you will become addicted to it and resent its absence. We have that almost where you can't innovate. You can't tell new stories because your audience are going to want the same thing over again. They they want the same stuff injected into their veins. And The Last Jedi, you know, literally tells you, let the past die, kill it if you have to. But the audience wouldn't let them. And as a result of that, I, f- I think Disney are currently afraid to do new Star Wars films. They're doing great guns with the TV shows, which but I don't think... But even that is um, a lot of rehashing. The Book of Boba It's Fett. rehashing... But it is it is rehashing, but it's telling new stories within that space. It is not just retelling the old stories. But they are Whereas... definitely playing it safe. We are doing an Obi-Wan TV series. We've got the Book of Boba Fett. We are retelling uh, with characters that they know are safe to play with and people that are safe. They're not doing, you know, Rogue Squadron as a property is now not happening, um, which I'm really gutted about. I, I thought but... it was still happening. It's just to be determined when, no. Uh, well, Patty Jenkins has stepped away from it out of a creative differences with Disney. Um, oh, I hadn't heard that. Oh. Yeah, no, and I'm not. Yeah, because I was really interested, given her experience with fighter jets and that kind of thing. I was really interested for her take. I think, and this is obviously speculation. I have no idea. I think the problem was she was edging more towards the Last Jedi style of Star Wars nostalgia, and I think Disney is scared because that's not worked for them and they actually can we have more like a force awakens one please more force awakens less the last jedi they're trying to break away from it though with this high republic stuff and they've started that by feeding it through books and comics and i really like the high republic stuff well we're supposed to be getting a video game set in it although let's not go into the issues of why that's problematic at the minute but there's a game coming out it really does look very good um so I think they're trying to break that, but they, they're they being very cautious about it because I think 10 years ago, like before Disney, Lucasfilm would have just said, hi, Republic game, boom, like they did with um, the old Republic stuff. And that'd be fine. But Disney are very much just trying to, we're just going to turn the heat up a little bit and just a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. <laughs> no more Star Wars anymore. I don't think I'd be that sad if they stopped Star Wars for a bit. It used to be something special. See, getting nostalgic. It used to be something you get once every 20 years. <laughs> true. And that's an interesting point. Have we become so reliant on nostalgia as a tool that we're just saturating the market with nostalgia fests and drowning out anything new? And actually, 
it it turns us off as an audience to the things we used to love because we're just getting hit over the head with it so much and like oh I'm really done with it like I want to see something else for a while like it's not nostalgia because it never leaves the screen um but RuPaul's Drag Race definitely suffers with this at the moment that it used to be you got a show you know every year now it never leaves because there's I don't even know, I've lost count, how many different versions of the show. There is eight new seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race coming in the year 2022. Which is just ridiculous. So, so um, seasons, eight seasons. Yep. Yes, uh, so that's um, that's the next UK season, Spain. Uh, I think they're doing another season of Down Under. All-Stars, International All-Stars, uh, the main American season, Canada. I think that's all of them. Uh, is there not another Netherlands one coming? Possibly, Europe, possibly whatever. instead of the Australian one, which was a bit racist and no one really liked. Um, you know, that's a current property that's been going now for over 10 years. The queens that are now appearing on that property were, a lot of them say, River Meadow from the third season of the UK one says, I grew up watching RuPaul's Drag Race. It is an honour to be on it. Which in some ways is great, but it never leaves. They've got their own streaming service now dedicated to drag race. Oh, there's other, some other stuff on there, but it's really for drag race. And I think wow, there's lots of seasons. things like <laughs> I know. But I think there's lots of things like so Star Wars is is a really good example of, you know, growing up, it was a treat. And now it's constantly there. There's always something new in the Star Wars universe and, you know, <laughs> is it canon? Is it not canon? You know, who knows? Um and I think we're at risk. I remember us having this conversation, Andy, I think last year about Star Trek. You know, growing up, that was, it was a treat. You got to watch something um, and hope it was good. Um, but now we've got lots of different Star Trek properties coming out. And so far, touch wood, from a personal opinion, they've all been good. So it's all right. But we're going to hit a point where we are oversaturated with it. And actually, I'd like to watch something else for a while, please. But I, th I think what's interesting with the Star Trek content, the new stuff, is that, I think, has very much leaned away from uh, relying on nostalgia for its storytelling. And people have lampooned it to do that. I think Discovery set in a really interesting time and then they jumped, they literally jumped so far in the future they could not be beholden to anything that happened in any other Star Trek property ever. It's a way to do it if you don't want to be... Uh, surrounded by the nostalgia and forced to fall into that nostalgia train um, but people have lampooned it for it so you know when the original trailer came out for the new season of discovery the one thing everybody complained about was well they don't look like the ferengi i remember and we had the same with the klingons and the same with the cardassians they don't look like the ones from when i was a kid boo hiss they're different i don't like it where's my nostalgia Actually, most of those original prosthetics in that do not hold up very well on 4K screens that we now watch them on. Like, there is a reason that a lot of the time then these things have to look different, and that's because they look like shit. Yes, but if you tell people that, they, they, they won't believe you. And it's it's interesting that you have shows like The Orville, where you will have many people lamenting uh, The best that Star that... Trek nostalgia without actually being Star Trek. Basically, yeah, that you have a lot of people, you know, doing that. And, yeah, you know, there's, there's a place for that. But that's not what Star Trek wants to be doing. And once again, people, let us remind you all, your old Star Trek still exists. It has a, And unlike uh, 
uh, Star Wars Holiday Special, uh, George Lucas hasn't gone away around and personally deleted every copy he gets hands on, so you can still watch it. Okay, so we've said what nostalgia does for us. It makes us feel warm and fuzzy and everything else. Um, we've said that people obviously get upset when things change in a reboot or a remake. Do we think we are killing off originality in cinema? I think there's definitely a risk of it because we're becoming so reliant on safe bets. Um, I think we talked about this on a different podcast or it was maybe just a conversation we had, but um, you know, the independent kind of films, like the middle tier, I guess, of films, they're not the big blockbusters, but. Oh, mid budget movies are dead. Yes. This is is something I've had strong opinions on for a long time. Maybe I should record a podcast about it. I actually think that's why I started the narrative labyrinth and I'm yet to do an episode on it. You're bigging it up though. That's the problem now. There's a lot of expectation lighting on it now. (laughs) I'm just never going to do it. It's going to be like a nostalgia thing. I'm just going to always talk about doing it and then never do it. And then when I do it, everyone's be like, mm, it's not as good as when you spoke about doing it. Anyway, yeah, mid-budget, movie, mid-budget movies are dead. We don't have mid-budget movies. And mid-budget movies are where we had a lot of our creativity and a lot of the spaces where our creators learnt to make blockbuster movies beforehand. You think things like um, the original Back to the Future was a mid-budget movie. In fact, most of the movies we've spoken about were originally mid-budget movies and not these huge big blockbusters yet. Yes, and that's because they were new ideas. And then because they were new, people loved them because it was something different. And now they've become their own thing. So now they're the thing that everybody's remaking and being nostalgic for. But because they're a safe bet, we've lost the investment in the mid-buster stuff that could become the next new franchise. Well, so you only really get two types of film now. You get, well, they only try to make two types of film. Blockbusters, which will launch a franchise, or Oscar bait. Those are the only two films that studios are really interested in making. Yep. Yep. And stuff like The Hunger Games, even though that was a franchise, it was a short-lived franchise, it wasn't Oscar bait, stuff like that, even that doesn't exist anymore. Um, But yeah, we have lost a mid-budget movie. That's a whole separate podcast. But we have lost a mid-budget movie where most of these things started. Um, But we're nostalgic for mid-budget movies, but we don't actually want to make a mid-budget movie. We want all the glossy, shiny stuff on top of our mid-budget ideas. So Yes, which leads us on to Matrix Resurrection resolutions i've lost track of what these things are named out matrix four electric boogaloo that was the second one (laughs) but yeah i mean the matrix the first one was completely revolutionary it was this brand new idea it was fascinating and interesting it was playing around with all these new technologies yada 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 and people loved it they did the second one and the third one the second one i never remember anything about other than monica bellucci's chest as was proved when watching matrix 4 because they kept doing these references and i was like i have no idea what they're talking about and apparently it was stuff from the second one who knew um and the third one i don't remember anything but the end so there we go um but matrix 4 obviously came about because the studio said you've got to make this film and if you don't make it we will make it without you um and they completely admit that in the film which i loved um And there's this whole section where they're debating what has to be in the new game. Sorry, because in the film it's a game. And, you know, what's the meaning of the original ones and how do we make people nostalgic for that while also doing something new? 
the Matrix Reservations does does kind of like turn straight to the camera and address it, you know, directly on it. I was just though just thinking back to what you were just saying about no mid budget movies. I think there might be a space where we're seeing them. It's just not at the cinema. And I think that might be something. No, it's on streaming sites. That's what I was about to say. Yeah, it's the streaming sites, which is where we're seeing those now. But even then, the streaming sites want to make a thing which will make you subscribe. They want to do two seasons of it, three at a push, and then they want to cancel it. So even then, it's not being driven by the art. It's not being driven by the story they want to tell. It's being driven by the demographics of how to get people to subscribe to different streaming sites. In what I think is possibly the worst example of nostalgia baiting ever made, I want to talk about Ready Player One. Do we have to? Yep. <laughs> so I read the book Ready Player One. A well, good... there's your problem. <laughs> I remember the book. Um, but I read the book a good four or five years before they made the movie. I may have Oh, read what a hipster. Well, I may have read the book because they said they were going to make it into a film. And obviously it takes a couple of years to get a movie together. But I distinctly it was a long time before. And the book itself is nostalgia bait. It is an homage to the 80s, to the products of the 80s, the games and the directors of films, including, you know, the George Lucases, Steven Spielbergs, et cetera, et cetera. And I find it the most like weirdly nostalgia re like nostalgia movies eating themselves that steven spielberg is the one that directed a movie that is an homage to his movie making yes wait there should be a, there should be a hand zimmer horn around here somewhere shouldn't there yeah, but do you not think it is like look i i have many issues with ready player one uh as a, as a series in in terms of the messaging and it really does exist just it, it's member berries the movie really isn't it because all that film is is hey you remember back to the future you remember Knight Rider? You remember Here's Iron the Giant? Car. Here's the mech. Separate. Although what's really interesting in, in watching Ready Player One is because obviously uh, I, I can't remember which studio made it, but I know it wasn't a Disney studio which made it because there's no reference to anything Star Wars or Marvel in there at all. There's no Tron in it either. Yeah. It's like you have this world and like the three biggest properties of the 21st century, arguably, and there's no reference in there whatsoever. It became almost a, a case of it was noticeable by its absence, given how hard they were trying to showcase. They are in the book. So the Tron cycles are in the book. Mm. Um, but obviously they are owned by Disney. This is a Warner Brothers property. It was made by Steven Spielberg. Um, so, yes, you've got things like Jurassic Park's T-Rex was in there, the Iron Giant. Um, there's some nods to The Shining, which I actually think were quite good personally. But... It just, it treats nostalgia as the answer to everything. And I think that's a really poor message. I well, you know what's mind... even worse than Ready Player One for that, though? Ready Player Two? No. It is a what? sequel, but it's far more insidious than that. Oh, no, what? Space Jam 2. Oh, no. I No, that is literally just rehashing the same, the same, the same thing. But not only is it rehashing the same, the same thing, though. It does the exact same thing Ready Player One does of setting up stuff where it's just so people can pause the TV and go, hey, look, it's the Drogos from uh, Clockwork Orange. I remember that fun uh, family friendly thing about uh, groups of uh, violent teenagers going around raping people. What a great place to put it into this family friendly film. (laughs) Um, I think that kind of ties it all together. Does anyone have any final things they'd like to say? 
there is there is a line that I've heard about the Star Wars prequels about why they weren't why why do the Star Wars prequels fail as prequels to the original trilogy? Because the original trilogy is built on the premise that things used to be better. They are built on an idea that before the Empire, during the Old Republic, everything was awesome. Space wizards went around with laser swords and everything was just great. But then when you saw the prequels, you saw that things weren't better. And while some people say that that undercuts the message of the original trilogy, I think it actually speaks to the wider message that nostalgia is a very unreliable narrator. And just because Obi-Wan remembers it fondly doesn't necessarily mean that it was. Excellent. And And Zoe? I guess mine's a bit of a challenge out there for anyone randomly who might be listening to this who actually makes stuff. Can we have some hopeful future, please? We're really doom and gloom at the moment, which is why I think we're so reliant on nostalgia because everything's a bit grimdark and we can't see a better world coming because, you know, climate change and we're literally killing the world. So understandable. Um, But we're really relying on nostalgia to create kind of happiness and hope in people because there's no hope for the future please can we have some hope for the future i would like to see something set in the future where we're not all dead or it's an apocalypse or whatever else because otherwise i think we're just going to keep relying on nostalgia because we've got nothing else to look forward to i did a podcast which haven't released yet but will be coming out soon where i was speaking to someone and they introduced me to a subgenre of speculative fiction that i think you might like hope it's punk. called hope punk yeah. yeah, Hope Punk. I like Hope Punk. Um, yes, but you I would like the more grim- films. So what you're saying, Zoe is saying she would like more Hope Punk in her life. Yes. And that's it for another episode. Uh, thank you once again to my guests, Andy and Zoe. Uh, do you have any parting words or anything you'd like to shamelessly plug? After you, Zoe. I went first last time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anything to plug, so go for it. Ah, well, uh, you, you can find me over at The Great Derelict, which is at road2media.com, where Rachel's on there sometimes, and Zoe's been on there once, and I will drag her back again at some point. Uh, and I don't think Rachel's going to invite me back again, so hey, it's been lovely. Bye. I don't know. I'll get nostalgic for you at some point and invite you back. Um, so thank you very much. Uh, don't forget to catch the next episode when we yet again delve into the depths of narrative on the screen, on the page, and the stories we create and play ourselves. You can find The Narrative Labyrinth on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, and a host of other podcasting platforms. Thank you very much, and goodbye. Goodbye.